Tonight's featured speaker, Martha S. Jones, is the Society of Black Alumni Presidential Professor and Professor of History at John Hopkins University. She is a past co-president of the Berkshire Conference of Women Historians, the oldest and largest association of women's historians in the United States, and she sits on the executive board of the Society of American Historians. Author of numerous publications, including two previous books, Birthright Citizens, and All Bound Up Together. She has written for the New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, USA Today, and more. In conversation with her, Karen Holmes Ward is well known to many of us in Boston. She's the Director of Public Affairs and Community Services, as well as host and executive producer of City Line, the award-winning weekly magazine program on WCVB-TV. Her program addresses the accomplishments, concerns, and issues facing people of color in our region. Karen has hosted a long list of notable guests and CityLine has received acclaim as the Associated Press Massachusetts, Rhode Island Best Public Affairs Program as well as numerous Emmy nominations. Tonight, our two distinguished guests will speak about Martha's new book and uncover the stories of women who were the vanguards of voting rights from the earliest days of the Republic to the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act and beyond. We will begin with Martha, but we welcome both of you. Thank you so much, Victoria. And thank you to everybody at uh, Boston Athenaeum for um, hosting us this evening. Um, I'm very much looking forward to my conversation with Karen Holmes Ward, um, but I'll take a few minutes um, as was suggested to just introduce Vanguard a bit for folks who haven't yet had a chance to read the book. The origins of this book um, were um, very deliberate. Um, I knew a few years back that we in 2020 would be marking the centennial of the ratification of the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, oftentimes referred to as the Women's Suffrage Amendment. I knew that we were coming upon a centennial anniversary year. Um, I knew there would be a great deal of um, conversation, celebration, um, opportunity to talk about American women's political history um, for someone like me who teaches the subject oftentimes in relative obscurity, um, it was an opportunity not to be missed. Um, but at the same time, um, there were signs that um, even as there was a great deal planned for the anniversary year, that African-American women in particular might be overlooked, um, might be alighted. Um, and some of the the more difficult dimensions of the history of women's rights and the campaign for women's suffrage in the United States, especially those chapters um, that were very much um, aligned with racism, with white supremacy. Um, I think, I thought we might be in danger of missing an opportunity to also confront and to wrestle with that difficult history. Um, so Vanguard was born um, very much out of an interest of um, making sure that in an extraordinary year like 2020, well, it turned out to be a lot more extraordinary than I might have imagined, but um, even in anticipation of the centennial, um, it felt important to try and tell what turned out to be a 200 year long story of black women's um, ideas um, about their organizing and about their activism around political rights. It is a story that stretches all the way back to the 
first decades of the 19th century. Um, and as we all know very well sitting here in um, March of 2021, that is a story that stretches until our own time. Um, every book has to have an ending. And one of the fascinating conversations with my editor was um, where would Vanguard land? Um, that is to say, I was finishing writing the book in 2019, not really knowing what the lay of the land would be in the fall of 2020. Um, I think I got it right, at least to the degree that I offer up for readers a figure like Georgia's leader, Stacey Abrams, um, as someone who really exemplifies the long-standing and distinct tradition of African-American women's politics. Um, fortunately for me, Leader Abrams has been um, deeply forthcoming about uh, the way in which she, as she would put it, stands on the shoulders of many generations of African-American women who have come before her, um, stretching back to the early 19th century history, coming all the way through 20th century figures like Shirley Trism and her run for the presidency or the nomination, the Democratic nomination in 1972. Um, Leader Abrams is the first to tell us about this history. And I hope that I have done justice um, to um, the tradition, um, to the inspiration, um, and to the hard fought struggles um, that indeed brought someone like her um, to the national political stage in recent years. And I think as we all um, might agree, there is more to come from Leader Abrams um, still. Um, at the same time, um, while I thought I got that right, um, there is a way in which um, uh, I could not have anticipated who could have anticipated precisely where we would be in the fall of 2020. Um, in an extraordinary, unprecedented, tumultuous election cycle in which um, Black American women um, are figures of consequence at every level of American politics. Um, we can talk about the 95% plus of, uh, of Black women who turn out at the polls and push the Democratic ticket um, over the top in so many critical states, including the state of Georgia. Um, we can talk about the black women organizers um, who um, put in the miles, put in the effort, um, did that kind of up close um, work of getting out voters across the country under extraordinary and rather forbidding circumstances of a pandemic. Um, we could talk about the 120 uh, 130, I should say, Black women who ran for Congress in this 2020 election cycle. It is a record shattering number um, that tells us about how Black women's political ambition has grown um, over the course of um, two centuries, such that now um, they look to and indeed do, um, certainly um, for folks in Massachusetts, um, that is um, profoundly apparent do exercise extraordinary influence, increasing influence in Washington. Um, but I myself did not wholly anticipate um, Kamala Harris, um, then Senator Harris, um, who was part of this force of black women in American politics in 2020. Um, and as we all know, emerges as um, the Democratic Party's nominee during the summer of uh, last year. Um, I want to take you back just for a moment to that moment when 
Senator, then Senator Kamala Harris um, takes the podium at that virtual Democratic convention to accept the nomination. Um, and she's going to tell us something about who she is, where she comes from, and where she aims to go as Joe Biden's running mate. Um, she takes time early on in her remarks to credit the women, as she put it, the women on whose shoulders she stands. Um, and uh, it is a remarkable moment, I think, first and foremost, because she uh, pays tribute to her own um, beloved and late mother, um, an immigrant to the United States from India, um, who was educated here and goes on to be a, can a cancer researcher and instills in her two daughters um, the strong sensibility that there are no limits on um, what they might aspire to do in their own lives. Um, and then, then Senator Harris goes on to invoke a chapter in American political history, the chapter I um, look to uh, explore in the pages of Vanguard. Um, she invokes the names of six women, uh, Mary Church Terrell, Ida B. Wells, Mary McLeod Bethune, Diane Nash, Fannie Lou Hamer, and Constance Baker Motley. You're not my students, so there's no quiz tonight, don't worry. Um, but it is a challenge to those of us who are familiar with other chapters um, in American political history. It might be that of the generation of Washington and Jefferson. It might be that of Susan Anthony um, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. It might be the era of Franklin Roosevelt or Martin Luther King or even Malcolm X. Um, but Kamala Harris shared with us another sort of chapter and it is the chapter of black women leading this country um, through a political vision that was at its core rooted in the insistence that neither racism nor sexism should have any role in arbitrating American politics and the power that flows therefrom. It is a tradition um, rooted in um, extraordinary um, suppression and violence that is directed at black women as they aspire and look to move into the political realm. Um, and it is a story of extraordinary persistence of black women who across generations bequeath to one another ideas, talents, skills, um, organizations and more um, that indeed do bring us to that 2020 moment in August when Senator Harris accepts the nomination. Um, so um, perhaps I can um, pause there at least and um, invite Karen Holmes Ward um, to join me. Thank you so much, Karen, for um, taking time um, with me, but as importantly, taking time with the women of Vanguard tonight. I'm really honored to share the evening with you. Martha, it's, it's I am I'm honored to, uh, to be with you this evening. Uh, I love history and am fascinated by the history uh, that you have shared with us in Vanguard. I mean, there's just so much for us to talk about. Um, you referenced watching that swearing in of Senator Harris as she became vice president of the United States. It was a proud moment for all women, uh, not just women of color, but for all women. But as you said at the beginning, this has been a 200-year history 
to get to what we saw uh, at that swearing in. And so I would like to have you go back in time and talk to us about the early beginnings of Black women, African-American women uh, on this journey of seeking political power and the obstacles that they faced. Uh, thank you for that. Um, it is a long journey. And I think readers who are um, familiar with a story that begins in an upstate New York village called Seneca Falls um, may be surprised to learn that this is not the starting place. That is not the starting place at all for African-American women's um, journey to political consciousness and political activism. Um, I'm gonna begin our story um, in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, why wouldn't I do that tonight? Mm -hmm. um, with the extraordinary figure of Mariah Stewart. Um, Mariah Stewart um, is a one-time um, indentured laborer um, turned free woman, migrant to Boston, um, a widow um, who um, out of tough circumstances is rebuilding her life, um, becoming an educator, um, becoming uh, a um, member of the Baptist church community, um, and most importantly, um, beginning to understand and to at least aspire to help her community understand um, that as Black Americans make that arduous transition from enslavement to freedom, as they begin to aspire to full political rights, to full citizenship, um, in Stewart's vision in Boston in 1831 and 32, um, folks are squandering women's talents, right? That women have a great deal to offer, um, that they not only have vision, um, they have drive, um, they have commitment, um, and they've got muscle power to commit to the struggle um, for full citizenship among Black Americans. Um, but she knows that she is not fully welcomed, she is not fully embraced in those political circles yet, that still Black Americans subscribe to rather constrained ideas about where women might fit um, it has something to do with the K word, the kitchen. Um, mm. And so here, Stewart is the very first American woman of any race to speak at a podium about politics to a mixed audience. Mm. And she does so four times in 1832 and 1833. Um, and the record of her remarks um, tell us a great deal about how even this early on, Black women are at work crafting a political philosophy that um, rationalizes, that justifies their ambitions. Um, Stewart's public life is short, um, cut short, because she really is ahead of her time as we sometimes stay, um, and the backlash against her challenge mm. to um, Black Americans, men and women, um, about her own political prospects is too much. Is really tell us, tell us specifically about some of the backlash that she faced. Absolutely. So Stewart, um, rather than being embraced or rather than sort of inspiring, um, is someone who, frankly, makes men in the community very self-conscious about their um, commitments to sexism, right? their commitments to the notion that there is a, 
uh, a private sphere for women and a public sphere for women. And Stuart, because she has been a working woman all of her life, understands the falsehood in that, that black women have never been accepted right, from public life, have never been accepted from the strictures and the demands of labor. Um, they have always had to live, if you will, on the two sides of that divide. Um, but the criticism is sharp and she will retire from public life, but not completely because she's an educator. And Mariah Stewart will spend the long rest of her life in Boston, uh, in New York, um, in Baltimore, in Washington, DC as an educator, now raising up the next generations of young women um, who will step fully into um, the challenge of American politics um, and this is true for so many of the activist women in Vanguard. Um, being an educator is that way into political thought. It is that way into exerting a kind of influence over next generations of young women. Um, and Stuart is someone who really gets us started there in the earliest years of the 1830s um, in Boston. Um, so much uh, has been um, mentioned about women standing on the shoulders of those that came before them. So as uh, Mariah Stewart retired from public life, as you say, she, she quietly began educating. Uh, tell us about some of the next generation of women that were disciples, if you will, of Mariah Stewart. Absolutely. I'm going to stay in Boston because I can't resist... Um, the, talking about someone like Susan Paul, um, who is a young woman, the daughter of a minister, that same part of that same Black Baptist community um, in Boston of the next generation, herself a teacher, um, who transforms her classroom um, into a lesson um, about anti-slavery politics. Um, she is going to not only teach herself, her students, her black pupils, um, the, um, the injustices of enslavement, um, she is going to make them um, agents of the anti-slavery cause. And they are going to tour um, as, as a vocal group um, and uh, look to bring uh, new converts into the movement. Um, Paul will be among um, an extraordinary cadre of women who will convene in the city of Philadelphia at the end of the 1830s in the first national women-led anti-slavery conventions in the United States. Um, she will make her way to Philadelphia with a delegation of women from Boston. Um, and what she will discover is that for white Philadelphians, for too many white Philadelphians, the prospect of white American and black American women meeting together once again to talk about politics, to look to change the public conversation, to change public minds, to influence law and policy and more um, is untenable. Um, and she will be among those uh, women who are beset upon by a mob in Philadelphia who will escape um, the burning of Pennsylvania Hall, um, the meeting place for this women's anti-slavery convention. Um, it is an introduction in the story of Vanguard to what will be the persistent, the ever-present threat of violence that Black women will face as they enter public life. Um, this is not 
uh, an undertaking um, uh, that can be as superficial as satisfying one's ego because um, women like Stuart and Paul and many others are going to be called upon to risk their very bodily well-being um, as they enter the public stage. This is a contrast, frankly, um, to Seneca Falls, where there is undoubtedly a great deal of strife um, within the deliberations over the demand that women might enjoy political rights, the vote. Um, but there is no mob outside the meeting house in Seneca Falls. Um, this is a uncomfortable, commodious, and compatible enterprise, very different from what happens in Philadelphia. I just can't imagine the um, sense of uh, danger that these women, women must have been in in their time and what they had to go through, uh, the courage to speak, be present, um, and to persist. I think that um, one of the things I really hadn't anticipated was um, how nearly every woman um, whose story I visit in Vanguard, nearly everyone at some point in her life has experienced um, the threat um, or the reality of violence. Um, oftentimes for black women activists, this happens when they are traveling. Um, the luminary Ida B. Wells remembered both for her work as a suffragist and as an anti-lynching crusader at the end of the 19th century. Um, perhaps her story is best known, um, but it stands in for hundreds of stories, probably thousands of black women on a railroad car, on a street car, um, on a steamer, um, who are forced out of ladies' quarters, are refused the seats that they've paid for, and find themselves in violent confrontations with other passengers, with brakemen and conductors and constables. This is a constant in the life of Black political women, um, even before they get to the meeting hall, where now they've got to wrestle over principles and ideas and tactics, right? And over the, the, the fabric of a movement um, to get to those meeting places, they uh, must endure um, extraordinarily, extraordinary assault, assaults on their dignity. And this is the word that black women give us out of this movement is yes, they're looking for equality, but they're looking for dignity as well. And dignity means being free Right, from what Pauli Murray later on will call Jane Crow, right? That intersection of mm -hmm. racism and sexism that plagues the lives of black women. Ida B. Wells, in fact, um, had to leave town quickly uh, in the in in the in dark darkness because her life was threatened. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, Ida Wells. Um, is uh, a journalist in Memphis, Tennessee, um, has set deep roots in that city um, until um, her um, neighbors and friends, um, three men are um, set upon by a lynch mob and murdered. 
Um, Wells has a kind of epiphany. She didn't fully understand lynching and the profound um, falsehoods that undergird it. But when she discovers not only the murder um, of her friends and neighbors, but the falsehoods right, that are then put forward to justify it, Wells understands everything. And she uses her unparalleled sharp pen to do that on the pages of her newspaper. Um, the message to Wells in return is, um, you must not come back to Memphis because the lynch mob will indeed come mm -hmm. for you. And she will settle in the city of Chicago um, and become um, an unparalleled crusader um, for anti-lynching legislation in Congress. Um, and at the same time, a suffragist who organizes black women in Chicago um, and really moves the needle on politics in Chicago as a result. Um, her newspaper uh, office, her printing press, all of her uh, tools for getting that message out destroyed and she had to flee, right? Yes. Mm. So tell us where the, um, how the division began or widened uh, between white women in the movement who were seeking uh, the vote and black women who also wanted and or expected to have that uh, equal uh, privilege of citizenship. Yes. Um, you know, one important moment in that story um, is the period just after the Civil War. Um, it's the 1860s. Now we are in the era we remember as Reconstruction. Um, the nation is searching for terms by which right, to um, uh, reconstitute itself. And that requires, among other things, um, a reconsideration of political rights. What will the future of formerly enslaved people in particular be? Will they be free? Of course, yes, by 1865 in the 13th Amendment, but will they be citizens? Will they have uh, political rights? These are open questions. And there's an old coalition that's been thinking about these questions for a long time. Many of them abolitionists, many of them women's rights advocates, um, and they are gonna reconvene um, in New York under the auspices of the American Equal Rights Association in these years to hash out where they now will come down on the future of political rights. And there are those um, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton who will insist on what is sometimes called educated suffrage, which is a code um, for insisting that white middle-class women should first have the vote before formerly enslaved men, for example. Um, there is Frederick Douglass and uh, folks like Douglass who insist that um, for black men, um, winning the vote is a matter of life and death, um, which it certainly was. Um, but also in these scenes are black women, including um, one of my sheroes, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, um, a poet, anti-slavery lecturer um, who is emerging as an early women's rights um, and suffrage advocate. Um, and she comes to these meetings to say, not so fast, um, that um, I'm not someone, right, who can um, bifurcate or divide her identity um, between the interests of women 
or the interests of African-Americans because I live at that intersection of the two. Um, and more to the point, as we talked about a moment ago, she's there to talk about having been harassed on streetcars, um, having been pursued as she traveled as a woman alone. Um, and part of what Harper wants this coalition to take up is the dignity of figures like her. Um, she offers a political philosophy that I think is profoundly visionary, even if it doesn't carry the day. And because she's a poet, she's always eloquent. Um, we are all bound up together in one great bundle of humanity. Mm. And this is the message that Harper puts on the table there in those extraordinary moments of the 1860s and that black women will pick up and carry through, I think until today, um, which is to say that they've come to politics, not simply to serve their own interests in a parochial or narrow sense, right? But to lift the bar for everyone, right? And that humanity um, is what sort of centers and grounds their politics in a way that I think um, should have, though it may not have shamed even a figure like Douglas or a figure like Susan Anthony, because um, Harper really sees a future, right, that um, is um, limitless, right, in the possibilities um, for democracy. But out of that moment, right, is the beginning of a division, because what Harper hears here in that moment is the ways in which Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan Anthony, um, have been willing to um, incorporate, adopt, be complicit with, to trade in, right, anti-Black racism in an effort to win um, a set of privileges for um, white middle-class women. Um, and while the role of racism and the place, the precise place of anti-Black racism in the suffrage movement will shift and ebb and flow over time. It is never a movement um, that is, um, that renounces or distance itself from anti-Black racism, unfortunately. And so Black women do not ever find a comfortable home, a compatible home, a place where they can speak about those intersectional interests that Frances Harper puts on the table. Um, suffrage associations are not that for Black women, even as Frances Harper will join the suffrage associations. She's not going to leave to white American women, right, the future of women's politics wholly. Um, but she's also going to be there for the founding of the National Association of Colored Women in the 1890s, which is the Black Women's Suffrage Association, mm -hmm. um, founded independently of white women. History is so complex. Um, when we were taught about the suffragette movement in school, uh, at least from the history books I was um, learning from, never was there made any mention of Black women in that same space. We are indebted to the late uh, and great historian of African-American women's politics, Dr. Rosalind Turborg-Penn, um, who um, as far back as the 1970s and on through um, the rest of her um, illustrious career, um, did the, um, the deep, deep painstaking research to first and foremost recover women like Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, who indeed were suffragists, um, even as they had been written out, elided, 
um, minimalized in the early histories of the movement. Dr. Turborg Penn knew who those women were. She knew where to look for them. Um, and she um, held them up for us so that we could begin to think differently. Um, there's no question, but that the early histories of um, the women's suffrage movement were written very much from the perspective of women like Stanton and Anthony, who, you know, in one sense, understandably celebrated their roles and the roles of the, the parts of the movement that they had built and had championed, um, but they did so at the expense of black women who were um, among themselves and in their own organizations staunch and committed suffragists um, even as they were also, like Ida Wells, anti-lynching advocates and a great deal more, um, Black women never abandoned a multifaceted, right, intersectional approach to their political agenda. Um, it was never an agenda that could be reduced to women's suffrage, but it was never one that abandoned women's political power. To the contrary, um, these same women we associate with the earliest struggles for modern civil rights, nearly all of them were also suffragists. So this friction that you speak of, this division between uh, a movement largely led, led exclusively by white women, uh, but in the meantime, black women leading a parallel uh, effort, this friction continues throughout, even uh, through the 60s, but fill us in on that time in between. Sure, so um, it's important to say that um, as the uh, momentum builds toward what is ultimately the ratification of the 19th Amendment, um, there is no secret, there is no secret that nothing in the 19th Amendment is going to guarantee to black women um, in many parts of the country, especially in the American South, nothing is gonna to guarantee to black women the vote because everyone knows and everyone speaks of how the poll taxes and literacy tests and grandfather clauses and more that are keeping black men from the polls will now be imposed on black women. Um, and no one looks to craft a more robust, a more interventionist um, a more effective 19th Amendment that would have avoided that fate for Black women. I think it's fair to say that the 19th Amendment is ratified in part. Its, root, its ratification is rooted in the promise that no state will be required to permit Black mm -hmm. women to vote despite mm -hmm. the ratification of a 19th Amendment. Mm -hmm. um, so Black women are, um, by 1920, um, left to assess a political landscape, which is profoundly uneven and in many places profoundly unjust when it comes to their political rights. And they are left to build a new movement for women's voting rights out of the disappointments of the 19th Amendment. Um, and we know that that movement includes, you know, uh, Chapters like Ida B. Wells in Chicago, who has founded the Alpha Suffrage Club and is bringing, getting women to the polls, getting, um, getting them uh, into the Republican party workings um, and is, is using the concerted voting power of black women to move the needle when it comes to voting rights. 
Um, we know that there is a, um, a legal campaign waged by the NAACP alongside school desegregation. The NAACP is fighting voter suppression, um, to use a 21st century term for what is happening after 1920. It's really been happening since 1890 and now for black women after 1920. Um, and among the members of that legal team will be Constance Baker Motley, um, who will um, be among those who litigates um, uh, the insistence on voting rights for black Americans. The team, that team will defeat the poll tax. It will defeat uh, the grandfather clause. It will defeat whites only primaries chipping away. And then of course, by the 1940s, um, we have the advent of the modern civil rights revolution and um, the women um, who, um, birthed that movement, who were the architects of that movement, who were the foot soldiers of that movement, um, are so many, um, but they are essential um, in holding up the nation to um, unflinching scrutiny when it comes to the denial of Black voting rights. They are essential to those um, confrontations, including that on the Edmund Pettus Bridge outside of Selma, Alabama, um, they are essential to holding um, the feet of the nation to the fire of black voting rights. And they win 45 years after the 19th amendment had been ratified. 45 years later, finally, a Voting Rights Act in 1965, um, which is um, unquestionably a high point um, in this long struggle over um, political power for black women. Talk to us about Fannie Lou Hamer, um, a woman who you would assume because of her upbringing uh, had no power, but she had power and used that drive within her to just flip the script. Talk to us about Miss Miss Hamer. Yes. So Mrs. Hamer, um, a one-time sharecropper, Mississippi, um, turned organizer under the auspices of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, in Mississippi. Um, early in her career, uh, Mrs. Hamer will pay dearly um, with her health, with her livelihood, um, retaliation, that violence that we've talked about earlier visits Mrs. Hamer very early um, in those years where she is looking to, with other organizers, to um, challenge the barrier um, to voter registration for Black Mississippians. Mrs. Hamer, um, by 1964, um, is at the head of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. A, a critical chapter in the story of um, voting rights and Black women's leadership. Here, she is going to bring her delegation to the Democratic National Convention of that summer. Mm -hmm. I always then, my mind always goes immediately to then 2020, right? And Kamala Harris and that same convention, mm -hmm. right? Um, accepting the nomination. It's an extraordinary arc of history. But in 1964, Mrs. Hamer brings her delegation to the convention. Why? Because the Democrats have seated a Mississippi delegation, an all white delegation that um, has been seated without the consent, without the votes, without the consultation of black Mississippians. And her view is that this is not a legitimate delegation if it hasn't taken 
into account the views of black Democrats in the state of Mississippi. And she comes with her own delegation to displace the one that's been seated. What we learn about Mrs. Hamer in this moment is multifold, but what I want to underscore is that we learn that she is a brilliant, brilliant strategist when it comes to using the image and the television camera. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She understands the power mm -hmm. of the image mm -hmm. um, to bring the Black quest for voting rights into living rooms, right? Yeah all over the country, right? Yes. So a struggle that she has waged on the ground in the trenches in Mississippi, she is now gonna to bring to that convention and before those national television cameras, um, now holding the feet of the entire nation, right? To the fire- Including the president of the United States at the time. Absolutely, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. so um, uh, she testifies, is slated to testify in front of the credentials committee about her grievance. Um, and the national cameras are on her. She's being broadcast. And Lyndon Johnson um, is vexed enough that he calls an impromptu press conference in Washington to draw the national cameras away from Mrs. Hamer, who is holding forth. And he succeeds for a moment. Um, her remarks are later broadcast in the evening. And I recommend to anyone who wants to get a sense of Fannie Lou Hamer, um, you, can, you can see this eight plus minutes on YouTube, um, but is a masterful, right? Um, uh, is a masterful performance, right? In front of national cameras. And what Mrs. Hamer knows, as so many activists of that generation understood, right? Was that in order to turn the minds of Congress, in order to turn the minds of Lyndon Johnson, right? They were going to have to take that struggle um, out of the local trenches and onto the national and the international stage. And mm -hmm. that is part of what Mrs. Hamer um, is able to accomplish. And it is really worth witnessing for yourself because um, she tells um, the story um, with um, a kind of um, truthfulness, but a kind of truth telling quality, um, a testimony quality, um, but also um, really gets to where the stakes are in the struggle over voting rights. Martha, we're going to uh, take some questions from the chat, but before we do, we must have you talk about the role of Shirley Chisholm because so many of the women who hold political office today credit Shirley Chisholm with being their inspiration. Absolutely. Um, uh, we were chatting earlier this afternoon and I, I mentioned uh, present day um, Congress member representative Barbara Lee um, from California um, who began her career in politics as a volunteer for Brooklyn's Shirley Chisholm in 1972, um, when Mrs. Chisholm ran for the Democratic nomination for president. Shirley Chisholm is um, uh, educated uh, in Brooklyn, New York, attends Brooklyn College, where she helps to found the Harriet Tubman Society. Already, she was thinking historically about the trajectory, I think, of her own life and taking from Tubman, the 
formerly enslaved activist who lives long enough to be a suffragist in New York State, um, inspiration for now young black women's politics in the 1950s. Um, Chisholm will be the first black woman to um, be elected to Congress in the United States in 1968 from Brooklyn, New York. Um, and here, she is someone who is um, stepping into the post-voting rights moment. Um, mm -hmm. She'll run for the presidency in 1972. I think it's fair to say not because she expects to win the party's nomination, but she understands that as a nation, we have entered a new moment in which now Black Americans are for the first time nearly unfettered in their access to the polls and Chisholm's campaign um, activates that electorate on a national level, right? Galvanizes it, not only for very important state and local contests, right? Mm -hmm. But with an eye on the national ticket. Um, you can't help but see in her trajectory and in her strategy, right? What makes the success of someone like Vice President Harris possible? Um, surely Chisholm certainly had to break um, that glass ceiling um, and put herself on the stump um, like other Democrats vying for that office. Here's one of the questions. <clears throat> Historians probably hate quote unquote, what ifs, but in your research, did you identify any moments when had things gone differently, women of color might have advanced their interests earlier or more successfully? Thank you for the question. Um, we, we don't love the counterfactual, but I'm gonna offer you one because I, I think um, not because um, I believe in alternative histories, but because I think that um, they serve our imaginations. So it's 1920, um, the election season is over. Black women look out across the landscape and they recognize that too many of them are still disenfranchised even as the 19th amendment is in full effect, what to do. Um, Hallie Quinn Brown is the head of the National Association of Colored Women and her idea is that now black women need all women, but black women in particular need federal legislation that would give teeth to the 19th amendment, make it enforceable to override the state laws that are still being used to keep black women from the polls. And she goes to Alice Paul, the head of the National Women's Party and asks Paul to join with her organization, the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs to now fight for federal legislation that would help to realize fully the promise of women's votes. Mm -hmm. Here's a moment right, for an extraordinary turn, an extraordinary, you know, Alice Paul is a serious political tactician and operative. It's a missed opportunity because Paul um, declines and uh, folds up the National Women's Party and moves on to champion the Equal Rights Amendment and leaves black women behind. Mm -hmm. um, it's a missed opportunity. Uh, and I want to underscore, because imagine if Black and white women had in that moment off of the success, the limited success, but the real success of the 19th Amendment, then recommitted mm -hmm. to the political 
rights for all American women had committed in a sense to now challenging the, the, the Jim Crow racism, right? That was a companion, right? To the uh, sexism that black women faced. Um, what an extraordinary turn that would have been in American politics. Think how much further all women would be uh, and arrive there much faster. Another question. Could you talk a little bit about your research process or working within the archives when writing the book? Did anything surprise you? And were you able to unearth any new narratives? Mm, yes. Well, there certainly are new narratives here. Um, and uh, um, uh, figures like um, Francis Harriet Williams, um, who um, in the 1930s and 40s is at the heyday of disenfranchisement for black women is alongside Mary McLeod Bethune learning how to do politics by any means necessary in Washington. And so um, I hope her story will be new and interesting to people as we try and understand how black women sort of um, traverse those, those very difficult years of Jim Crow um, uh, before World War II. Um, I would say that, um, gosh, um, in terms of research process, um, part of what I wanted the book to highlight, two things. One is that Black women's historians have been at this work for three going on four generations. And so I know folks don't want to read the footnotes, but peruse them to appreciate um, that this is a book that would not be possible um, had not these generations going back to the great Dr. Rosalind Turborg Penn and coming forward until this moment, the Black women's historians who have been doing this work and their work, I hope I've done some justice to and is reflected in the footnotes of this book. Um, I really wanted to dispel the notion that um, the historical archive um, doesn't permit us to write about Black women's lives or to recover their words. And so most of the women in Vanguard are women who to some degree or another are able to leave their own record, um, their own thoughts, including enslaved women in this story, like Harriet Jacobs, who in 1861 publishes her fugitive slave narrative, um, which I draw upon. Um, I wanted us to, as best we could, encounter those women um, unmediated um, and um, in their own words. And so I hope I've done justice to that. The hardest thing was the women in the 20th century, like the great Mary McLeod Bethune, educator, suffragist, founder of the National um, Council of Negro Women and more. Um, Bethune, like many of the women of the 20th century, know that they are making history. Mm. And that uh, people like me are going to come behind and want to write about them. And Mrs. Bethune, in my estimation, goes to great lengths to enshroud her story in some remarkably um, important myths about who she was. And I found myself really wrestling with her um, to kind of um, discern, if you will, gently fact from fiction, right? Myth from lived experience. And I came away um, thinking she was really good <laughs> because it's not so simple to unravel those things. And that's the way I think she would have had it. But also I came away appreciating that um, for women who live these extraordinary 
but risky and dangerous public lives, um, myths are sometimes what keep them whole, um, that give them um, shelter, um, that shield them. And so I came away with a new kind of respect for sometimes why we have to create stories about ourselves that don't wholly comport to how we lived. Um, but that is the nature of a risky um, uh, public life. And, and Mrs. Bethune is only one of the many women who took extraordinary risks in order to insist on a life in American politics. Another attendee uh, would like to know, what is your students' experience of learning about Black women's work toward political agency and contributions over 200 years? Yeah, thank you for that, because um, this book is more indebted to my students than any I had written before. Um, I was on a very um, short deadline to finish this book and did something I'd never done before, which is I organized seminars in which my students um, read the chapters and helped me to workshop this book and to um, make sure that it was written in a way that it would speak, yes, to specialists and folks who are developing expertise in this field, but also to general readers who have a curiosity about Black women's history, American political history, about those six women who Kamala Harris invoked and more. And my students really kept me honest as a writer um, because they are not interested in jargon. Um, they're not interested in high flying theory, at least not upfront. And, um, and they really, I think helped me um, to stay um, close to and true to the women um, in this story. My students, um, took to Wikipedia with the support of the Wikipedia Foundation and mm. um, expanded on and improved the Wikipedia entries for the women in Vanguard so that when people went looking for them, they would find um, the whole story. Um, and, you know, Wikipedia is wonderful, but uneven. Um, and uh, my students did wonderful work to um, foreground the suffragist um, dimensions of these women's lives, even as their lives were filled with interesting and important activism. Wikipedia is fantastic, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> so we have one more question. Um, as you look back on 200 years of um, Black women uh, breaking barriers, fighting for the vote, insisting uh, on equality for all, which is the subtitle of your book, with the um, achievements of Kamala Harris and Stacey Abrams in the in the organizing uh, aspect of this work. What do you see as the future for Black women in this arena? Yes, um, I think what we are a part of here in twenty twenty one is a shift from black women being firsts, right? Simply breaking barriers or shattering glass ceilings to becoming a force in American politics. And um, I think we will see um, on the national stage for the very first time, right? What it means now for black women um, to come together um, through what are four us some 
longstanding values, interests, and objectives. What does it mean now when we have um, a, a cohort right, of Black women political leaders in Washington who come out of that tradition of Ida Wells and Mary Church Terrell and Fannie Lou Hamer and Mary Church Terrell? Um, how does that change the agenda in Washington legislatively policy-wise, in law, and more. Um, I think that's what we're poised to see. Now, of course, we're poised to see that play out at a moment in which um, our democracy is strained, perhaps like never before. Certainly. And isn't that, isn't that why it's strained? Well, because... I, I think that, um, uh, and I'm not someone who wants to um, offer um, black women is the Sherpas, uh, Sherpas of American democracy, right? This is not um, the burden that black women um, should or must carry alone. But I still believe that black women have been distinct visionaries about American democracy. And that is a heavy burden, um, but I think it is a burden that we will see black women shoulder willingly and indispensably, right? That we need in this moment, not simply solutions and policies, right? We need vision. We need to set the bar high for this democracy and not settle, right? In the ways in which it can feel on some days we are merely settling for some shadow, right? Of what we were um, once, you know, imagined we might be. Um, I do believe that these black women leaders will continue to set the bar high continue to set the goals for us. And it is back to those principles like equality and dignity and all of humanity. Um, and that is a difficult chapter, but it is one um, I'm here for.